Valentina is a sexually liberated photographer in 1970s Italy. Her life changes when a lesbian witch attempts to seduce her. This time on Feminist Barroom Brawl's Witch Edition, we're delving into the history of witch exploitation films from the 60s and 70s with 1973's Baba Yaga. you up to be a pagan you boys like magic don't you you don't believe there is such a thing at all no no dear no i don't. a terrifying journey into witchcraft and the occult why my little party just beginning this is dan venna and tamara de seguio lang and we're both off-the-clock film professors living in Cataraque, Kingston, on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. These days, witches are all over pop culture. News stories are everywhere about the rising popularity of witchcraft or other spiritual practices that are being reclaimed. With explicitly political witches using witchcraft towards social change, at protests and at home and in community. We also see witches on TV and in movies taking on explicitly feminist causes. In our first episode, we talked about the 2020 film, The Craft Legacy, a film that is explicitly feminist and calls itself feminist. With all of this popularity and excitement around the figure of the witch, we, along with our colleague Emily Pellstring and a team of, an, of amazing people, are planning the Witch Institute, an online symposium happening in August. And right now is when you want to go to witchinstitute.com to get tickets and more information. The tickets are free, but the events are filling up fast. So in the lead up to the Witch Institute, we thought we'd dip into the Witch Film Archive to see if this link between witch films and feminism that we see creeping up in contemporary popular culture has always existed. Each episode, we travel back in time to debate the feminist merits of a deep cut witch movie from a select decade. We used to have feminist barroom brawls not necessarily about witches, um, in person at the grad club here in Kingston. And we usually would debate whether our favorite guilty pleasures, most, most of which seem to be from the 90s, had any redeeming feminist features. At each event, we would flip a coin to see which of us had to argue that the film was feminist or not feminist. This random choice meant that the arguments that we make don't always line up exactly with our own perspectives on the film. This is really a lighthearted take on feminism and pop culture inspired by many events and podcasts. And one that we could think of is Drunk Feminist Films, which happens in Toronto. So join us on this episode where we dive into the 1973 Italian classic question mark Baba Yaga and debate, is this feminist or not feminist? 
So before we get into the synopsis of this very strange film, I think we have to talk about exploitation cinema a little bit more broadly, because this film really is coming out of a particular moment and a particular filmmaking tradition, too. Probably folks may have heard of exploitation cinema and some of its other perhaps more situated American branches, such as black exploitation cinema with the films of Pam Greer, for instance. And for those who follow Quentin Tarantino, he's very heavily inspired by exploitation cinema around the globe. So there are ways in which exploitation cinema have filtered into mainstream consciousness and popular culture. But at this point in time, exploitation cinema is still pretty nitty gritty. It's very low budget. It's independent cinema that is purposely going against kind of mainstream aesthetic and narrative traditions to highlight style, formalism, and of course, erotic and sexual expression. And violence. These are films that are very explicit in all the ways um, and in many of the ways that you wouldn't see in mainstream cinema at the time. So within the Italian context, you would have had giallo films in the 1960s, which are really kind of pulpy films. They're based off of the yellow pulp paper that would have been printing these kind of trashy stories of sex, mystery, and violence. And so filmmakers started to translate those works for the screen. And they're often very visually decadent films with not a lot of a narrative component to them. So you could think of Suspiria as being a kind of greatly acclaimed exploitation film for the way in which it portrayed the witchy ballet school. However, there are definitely films a little less well-known than Suspiria, including films like Baba Yaga that take up that exploitation flair, but situate, situate it directly in, a, in the world of witchcraft or sex and magic. So Dan and I have been um, making a list of every witch film that we can find um, globally over the past century plus. And there are many, many films in the 60s and 70s that um, center witches. There are many of these films coming out of Italy at the time, but of course there are some coming out of, or many coming out of America as well. And some coming out of the UK or France, um, even South America. And they are pretty amazing just to look at. We keep joking that we want to publish a book of which film posters um, maybe we will someday, maybe we won't, but we could think of films within this sort of witch exploitation cinema. So exploitation cinema that features witches heavily. So there are a lot of films in this kind of witch exploitation subgenre, and those might include one that's a little more famous called The Virgin Witch, but others like Blood Sabbath, Satan's Cheerleaders, Satan's School for Girls, Twins of Evil, um, Black Magic Rites, or a favorite of us, of ours, Psyched by the 4D Witch, which we have no idea who made it or how it was made, but it is a little, a little hidden gem. 
So one of the things you'll also hear from that list is that the title of the film has to be equally almost absurd or outrageous to kind of capture the level of kind of extremism that we might see in these types of films. So it's very much about tantalizing the audience. You know you're going to get involved with kind of socially taboo material or perhaps visual or audio content. And it's really supposed to be an experience. You're not going into these films trying to find the logical plot. You're going into them to kind of feel what they have to offer. And often it's a lot of, as Tama mentioned, mixing violence and sex together. And of course, we have to think about these films in the context of the 60s and 70s as well, in the context of the sexual revolution that's happening um, with youth cultures that are very much more open to sex hippie cultures and and sexual cultures that are really into occultism at the time. And so this kind of sex magic that's made popular by certain kinds of witches or in certain kinds of practices is coming out in these films to appeal to those audiences that are intrigued by both sex and magic or witchcraft. But With the exploitation piece, what we see in the films is usually a lot of women's nudity, um, not so much men's nudity. We see women um, placed on altars. We see the naked body very much uh, used to titillate audiences. They're very rarely a place of women's sexual agency. Or self-expression, really. And these are often helmed by male creators, male directors, um, whole film crews. So really, this is already, I feel, a little bit of an uphill battle for anybody who does want to make a claim towards these the feminism of these films. All right. Well, let's talk about Baba Yaga in particular then. Because... This has an interesting plot. Like you say, they're not very plot heavy or story heavy. Um, But how would you describe this one, Dan? Because there's a doll in it, a doll. (laughs) There is a doll in it, Tama. And this film is actually shockingly substantive for an exploitation film. There's a number of meditative scenes and interludes that are almost surreal and they also serve as political commentary on the Italian context at the time. So in 1973, Italy is in a huge state of unrest. There's kind of quite literal warring fractions between the far left and the far right. Um, There's protests, there's strikes, there's labor union strikes. Uh, student strikes, a whole countercultural movement that has kind of exploded and taking up space in the main stage of culture. And also, this is again set behind an incredibly violent backdrop. Between 1968 and 1988 in Italy, over 400 murders were committed by the warring fractions of the far left and the far right. So this is a hugely chaotic time where young people are really openly discussing the benefits of socialism, if it can be sustainable. What if, um, you know, the fascists were to come back in power? There's a lot at stake, it feels like, in the Italian context. And given how much that is at stake, 
It's interesting to see that really inform the filmmaking of Baba Yaga, which centers a woman photographer. Her name is Valentina, and she is essentially um, a fashion photographer. She also does pictures of uh, kind of independent films that are in process. And one day she meets a witch. Now, before we go into what will happen when she meets this witch, it's worth noting that this character of Valentina and the story itself is actually based on a comic book, adding to its kind of low-grade or low-culture exploitation flair. Valentina was a comic strip that started in 1965 in Italy by Guido Crepax. And Guido's um, artwork is seen kind of stylized in the film through its montage sequences that are really drawing from the comic book panel setup to do a few of these montage sequences, which I think is super fun. So if anybody is just wanting to have a kind of experience of the visual, this actually has some really lovely comic book meets film montages. And the director of Baba Yaga, Corrado Farina, which I probably butchered, Dan, do you like to chime in there? No, you're doing good. Corrado Farina. It's essentially the best last name ever because it's flour, like it, like flour that you make bread with. It's an awesome last name. <laughs> <laughs> so he's talked about how he was a big, big fan of the comic. The comic was also um, very sexually explicit. It was kind of a pornography comic. Um and how he was not satisfied with how filmmakers were bringing comic strips to moving image at the time. And he's not the happiest with how it turned out, actually. He doesn't think that it was particularly successful at translating that aesthetic and timing and um, framing of the comic book. But I don't know. I think it's pretty good. Shockingly, we're not here to debate how successful it was in adapting the comic book to the screen. Perhaps that's another podcast for us on witch adaptations. But in this story, he does in some ways tone down the explicit sex that is a part of it. Obviously, there's you know some limitation with censorship and attracting an audience for things that's happening in the with the movie, but it does preserve the kind of eroticism of the comic. And that's particularly through the kind of conflict between Valentina and the witch Baba Yaga, who through a somewhat chance meeting, although that's debatable, end up meeting on the street. The witch is kind of immediately taken by Valentina. You could see that there's like this desire there, there's a lust there. And essentially the witch possesses Valentina's camera, which starts to essentially enact really violent actions on its own without Valentina's kind of control. And this leads her to, into this kind of spiral of conflict with the witch. And there is definitely some like lesbian eroticism that is happening between the two. But one of the most interesting, strange, wonderfully delightful additions to the film is the doll that Valentina is actually gifted by the witch. Yes, we must talk about Annette, Annette the doll. So Baba Yaga gifts Valentina or Val this creepy kind of 
traditional looking Victorian style doll with curly blonde hair. Um, who's wearing a chest harness, who's in fetish gear. Um, and she says that the doll will protect her. Um, what becomes obvious, and it's it's it takes a minute to become obvious, is that the doll is actually coming to life at some points and also doing some of that murdering of people using her hairpin. Um, and eventually becomes also a tool of Baba Yaga to enact violence on Valentina herself. Very sexualized violence, as you can imagine, from her getup. Of course, there is a final struggle between the two, which also involves Arno, who is uh, kind of a lovesick puppy with Valentina. He keeps kind of propositioning her, but Valentina seems to not really be terribly interested with him. But the two end up kind of facing off against Baba Yaga. And Annette. Don't forget about Annette. <laughs> and Annette eventually kind of quote-unquote conquering the witch but it's left a bit ambiguous as to if the witch has actually uh fled and has gone elsewhere or if she's fallen into a hole to hell or if she never existed at all which is so classic in these films and i appreciate it so that is our attempt to make sense of a very non-linear narrative in some ways uh, and we hope that has given you a good sense of what this film employs before we start to duke it out over feminist or not feminist uh, let's get ready to rumble hello everyone and welcome back to feminist barroom brawl witch edition my name is Steffi. I'm a professor at Carleton University, and I am your referee for this session. So the rules are simple. If you've heard from us before, you'll know that there are three rounds, approximately 10 minutes around. Tama and Dan are going to fight it out between each other in each of those rounds. And at the end, I'm going to crown the winner. So how we decide which one of them is fighting for non-feminist or feminist is based off of our little virtual coin toss we're going to do and you're just going to have to trust that we're doing it right so we're going to do the coin toss tama would you like to call heads or tails i'm going to go for tails steffi great thanks tama so we're going to do the flip and it looks like it's heads Okay, uh, I think I'm actually going to take not feminist, because as I said, I think that's actually the easier position on this film. Game on, Dan. So since Dan won the coin toss, Tama, the floor is yours first. All right. I think we have to start with the point that Dan has already started to bring up. And that is about the sexualization of women in this subgenre, but also about the sexualization of Valentina in this particular film. So I actually think it's quite a different film to many of the witch exploitation films we've watched, because you often have this kind of storyline where you have a really innocent virgin um, or a very innocent girl who is um, seduced by the witch character 
and whether that's literally seduced um, sexually or seduced into witchcraft and uh, all of the sexual parts of witchcraft. But what we have in this film is Valentina, an extremely sexual person who actually does have a lot of sexual agency. In one of the first scenes, we see Arno, this um, lovesick puppy dog, following Valentina after a party. Um, he wants to go home with her and she says to him, listen, Arno, I don't feel like making love. You know, she's got a lot of uh, of agency in this film she knows what arno wants from her she is not opposed to sex and later she invites him up and he says do you know what you're saying to me and she says yes i do um, she's someone who's very aware of sex who likes sex but likes it when she wants to have it not just because she is a woman in this film and a man is attracted to her Dan, do you have a rebuttal? Yes, I do, Steffi, because I've been told by my mother I speak too much. So in this episode, I will try my best to be uh, the gentleman who, <laughs> who waits. That doesn't sound like a very fun fight, Dan. All right, then I'm so sorry, Mom. All right, Tama, so what's going <laughs> to happen here is that I'm totally going to buy your opinion of Valentina, but I'm going to counteract it with the fact that narrative is one thing, visuals and the kind of sensation that the formal elements of the film produce are quite another. And particularly, it's the editing here that I'm a little kind of caught up on. Because I agree, the character does show agency. In fact, the whole film actually has an interesting kind of female gaze to it. She's a photographer. We often see her capturing things through her look with the camera, which is really interesting. And kudos. And thank you for that you. point, Dan. Yeah, we I'm will aware. Come back to it later. I'm don't aware. Worry. Oh, don't worry. I have more to say with that, Tama. But um, at the same time, we see images of Valentina having nightmarish, uh, like surreal dreams particularly early on, she dreams of being killed by a Nazi who's holding a cat. Fair warning, that cat will appear in the arms of Baba Yaga when she meets the witch. So there is this kind of connection between the witch, uh, the Nazi party, World War II, the kind of trauma done to Italy during World War II and to the Italians. And this kind of hazy, dream, this PTSD dream, which is clearly showing like a lot of the emotional things Valentina is struggling with, is then edited such that when she wakes up, she's nude, she's actually stripped in the dream itself. And so there is an uneasy connection here between trauma and sexuality that I think could be productive if it wasn't necessarily so eroticized through the actual spectacle of the film. Yeah, but I think that's what's great about it is it isn't a simple representation of her sexuality or even when she's naked in the film it it doesn't read as pure exploitation that's just there for for the male viewers arousal right we actually have sex scenes that are 
even when she's with Arno that are like, I would argue a little bit lesbian. Like there's a lot of focus on hands and eyes. It's very um, kind of slow motion and artsy. Uh, yeah, but that's because it's mean the cop. Dan, Dan, let Tama finish her point. It's not the kind of sex that is all about focusing on women's anatomy and women's nudity. It is quite partnery. It is not all about um, showing off breasts. Um, and we also have that in the sexual scenes with Baba Yaga because they there are some scenes they share that are they're not having sex, but they're very sexual. There's a lot of like, um, for instance, taking part of a thigh high in her mouth. Like there are these scenes that are very much about um, sexuality that's not just about heterosexual sexual intercourse. May I jump in now? You may. You may. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I do think uh, you bring up, yes, some key features of some of the sex scenes, but also some of the sex scenes are really heavily inspired by the kind of comic book art that, that, this, that the story is based on. And like comic book art, there is this paneling that is done in the film specifically during the sex scenes, which does actually break the body down into erotic or erogenous zones. We do see kind of close-ups of uh, breasts, of the butt, of curves on the body that are, that are titillating. And I think it is a bit of a male gaze controlling the paneling that we see in those montage scenes. And you talk about also Valentina's kind of sexual relationship with the witch Baba Yaga. And there is a scene in which Baba Yaga possesses the glove Valentina puts on and Valentina begins to masturbate with the glove. And it's not necessarily an act of consent there. Like that is kind of a sex magic glove that is being- Where used. do you get that? It's not necessarily sex it's magic. It's definitely possessed. <laughs> I don't know if the it's witch, possessed. Yes, through the editing, the editing implies that the witch is kind of controlling it. And even by the performance of the actors, there's kind of an implication that Valentina is performing this act, not necessarily against her will, but it's not really her hand controlling the movement, let's say. See, I find that to be a scene that really shows her, act, her actual desire for Baba Yaga. There is so much editing between the two of them where Valentina is looking at Baba Yaga. There's a lot of, I have a note here that their, um, their eye game is strong. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of gazing between the two of them. There's a lot that hints that Valentina is actually very, very turned on by Baba Yaga. Even the way the camera moves when we first see Baba Yaga is in this very classic um, way that usually implies a kind of um, objectification of women where we start at the foot and we slowly pan up the body. But Baba Yaga's costuming 
while being very sexy in my opinion is like she's very covered up she's wearing witch boots she's wearing like big skirt she's wearing a veil and a hat she's dressed in sort of victorian kind of um clothing so they do sexuality in actually a very nuanced way so we're entering the end of this first round so dan i'm gonna ask you to do your final rebuttal and since tama started dan you could end us off and then we'll move on to the second round I'm so glad I get to have the last word in this round because I feel I've been really uh, censored from from participating in this round. But um, I feel as though the gazing that you're talking about that's specifically being created in the editing is not necessarily always about sex, sexuality, and eroticism. There's a threat involved. There's a there is a suspicion of, you know, Valentina being under threat, that something wrong is happening in this relationship. And I don't think the gaze is purely sexual. I think it's there in the editing to reaffirm to the audience that there is something very threatening about this relationship. So I don't actually read it as being part of the kind of lesbian eroticism that's being created in the film. And that's the end of round one. Okay, Dan, I think we should go back to what you were saying before about the sort of female gaze of Valentina being a photographer and uh, using a camera. And we do often see things through Valentina's camera lens. And I think we have to talk about how the film actually starts after the opening credits. And that is at a party with a man going up to to Valentina saying that I want to photograph you nude in a field of wheat in this very traditional male gaze kind of way he's a photographer thinks he's great at it and that she is there to be his model but she rebuts him as she does with many people in the film and her friend Arno tells him oh are you drunk oh brother Valentina Roselli, she is a photographer. Ciao, Arna. Ciao. A photographer. Only publicity, fashion, art, politics, and news. Haven't you ever heard of Cartier-Bresson? Sure, Cartier-Bresson. It's a pseudonym. Her real name is Valentina. That's Valentina's um, pseudonym that she uses to be taken more seriously by using a men's name. So this is how the whole film is framed, that Valentina is actually the one who should be respected for her gaze, that she's not the object of the gaze. Yeah, but her lens, Tama, is made violent by the witch. The witch literally possesses her camera such that when she begins to literally shoot or photograph people, she kills them. She actually accidentally kills a protester in the street. And then once she gets Annette the doll, Annette the doll comes to life during the photo shoot and ends up killing the models Valentina is shooting with. So, I mean, there's quite literally like a re-phallicization of the camera in some ways. Like what potential the camera had while under the control of Valentina is quickly co-opted by the witch. So for sure, I mean, I'll give you that. The the camera, the the female gaze does become the weapon of violence in this film, for sure. And it's also a weapon that Valentina is quite uncomfortable with. She doesn't actually want her friend, the model, to die. 
But at the same time, too, I think it is part of this reversal of the traditional male gaze and with it male power. This is something that the that Baba Yaga the witch is trying to show Valentina that she can actually have power in these ways that that those in power of the country um, that those who are who are leading up these protests that often get violent, i.e., predominantly men, she can also have that power. Is it the perfect kind of power? No, it's a violent power, but she is showing her that that reversal is possible. But this sounds sneakily like a kind of post-feminist argument, right? If women do it, is it any better? If women usurp or take or are kind of involved in these traditionally patriarchal structures of power, is it better now? And I think we could easily fall down a very problematic rabbit hole trying to say, well, like, is it better that Baba Yaga is showing her what men's or male power could be like if, if she were to control it? And I think that doesn't ultimately end up anywhere productive for us. And I also think that when we're talking about the gaze, it's hard to not consider a very problematic scene. I mean, that's to say lightly, a very racist scene in the film where Valentina is photographing a black model and is essentially cueing him to behave in highly racist stereotypical ways. And so without going into more detail about what she requests of him, it is a really problematic scene that the gaze is again a white woman's gaze and that it enacts racial violence on this character. Okay, Dan, you just you just threw a lot at me. So let me let me work this out. Cause I do have responses to a couple of things you just said. First is that this power struggle um, is not productive, so that it is a little bit in that kind of post-feminist vein. I agree. Violence isn't really what I want for my feminist revolution, but um, I would say that it actually does become productive because it leads to a conversation near the end of the film between Baba Yaga and Valentina that I think we could play here. You will come with me, Valentina. And you will know the secrets that men have been trying in vain for centuries to know. You will be rich and powerful. So what we see here is Baba Yaga presenting her idea of power, which includes this kind of violence. Um, But Valentina is actually saying, that's not what interests me. So we do have um, a more complex version of this kind of post-feminism here where Valentina actually is kind of a good example of feminism in many ways. She is, she is sexual, but is not just there for other people to sexualize. And she tells, she lays down the line with um, Baba Yaga and says, no, actually, I don't want that kind of power. That's not what I'm looking for. So it gives us this opportunity to have this more complex dialogue about power. Then in terms of the racist photo shoot, which is certainly racist, um, I also want to argue that this film is talking about the gays again in a complex way, that it is presenting a critique of 
the constructed image, a critique of racist imagery that would have been probably pretty common back then. We still see it, that kind of thing today. And what happens is she's actually talking to her friend um, and he is uh, an academic at the university. Um, he's uh, a political activist. He has a lot of things going on and she basically tells him to forget all that. And I want you to forget that you have an education and live in a civilized world. She's, she's showing how the image is not reality, how anytime we do a photo shoot, we're actually creating an image, not, um, not just reflecting what's already there. And we see this happen again because Arno, her friend and sometimes lover Arno, also is a filmmaker and he's a political filmmaker, but to make money, just like Val makes money through these photo shoots that are for advertisements, Arno makes, film, makes commercials so that he can support his political filmmaking. And the commercial we see Arno shooting also looks, again, this is not the most linear film. It's not the most easy to understand, um, but the commercial he's shooting also looks pretty racist. And so we have this juxtaposition of their commercial work versus their activist work. And they talk very explicitly about activism and the role of the image in in making activist media. And that's not what's being represented by these racist shoots. I agree. But again, because the, the film itself lacks linear narrative structure, it's hard to impose these readings on it as intentional or not. I think you've given a really lovely and sophisticated reading to how the gaze, the creation of the image, and which even goes to speak to the creation of the image in the comic book itself, which is, you know, sequential moving images. I feel like that's a reading we're bringing to the text versus what it's offering us in some ways. I think it is not particularly explicit in the narrative that there's this kind of binary between who they are as professional money-making filmmakers and artists versus who they are as kind of politicized activists. In fairness, I think there's actually an attempt to meld those identities more closer together in the film than there is to show stark division between them. And so I'm not sure if the film is drawing enough attention to that construction to say, oh, look, here's its critique. I'm going to have to disagree because they literally have a conversation in the car about this. They literally talk about the role of media in activism and revolution. They literally say it. So I don't know how you can get more obvious than that. Never mind reading the images. They literally say it with words. What are you going to do with that close-up, the rat? No, I don't know. Maybe I won't use it. And then maybe I'll show it next to a photo of some big industrialist, huh? You think they'll let it pass through on the mm -mm. No. But I can still show it on a closed circuit, can't I? In other words, instead of showing it to a middle-class audience of 10 million, You'll show it to 10,000 intellectuals, and not in the service of ecology, but in the service of your own vanity. If you don't use the means that the system provides, what other possibilities have you got? Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> and who starts it? The union does, right? Or intellectuals, writers, 
Our movie director? <laughs> You're talking about me, aren't you? Hell, I'm only the little guy. Today, I shot a service on ecology. And tomorrow, I start a series of soap commercials. You're nothing but an old whore. That's true. And who isn't? We're all whores of various species. The only difference is that I'm a whore and admit it, while the majority are whores but play at being saints. Sure, but really, what's 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 dialogue if not just... Uh, I, uh... No, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. We could argue it about images. We could argue it about cinematography. But what you said was you wanted it to be more explicit is pretty explicit. It still doesn't play well, is where I'm going to end maybe that particular aspect of our debate. All right, everyone, that is the end of round two. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Feminist Barroom Brawls. This is Steffi, your referee, and we are about to enter round three. Lesbians, Dan. Let's talk about lesbians. All right, Tama, one of my favorite pop culture topics, lesbians. Let's dig into it. So there's an interesting line that Valentina has that kind of takes down the potential of the lesbian eroticism that I was really hoping for in this film. This film is kind of primed to actually have a very interesting sexual relationship between the two women. And when they are in conflict talking, Valentina says... And don't try to tell me who to make love with, because no man has ever done that, let alone a woman. No man has told me who I'll make love to, let alone a woman, and kind of like shuts it down. And yes, consent, absolutely. Agency, boundaries, awesome. But the potentials for the lesbianism here are all but kind of stifled in that moment. Does it have to have a lesbian moment to be feminist? No, but it would certainly help its case in this particular instance because of all the setup that is being brought to the fact that they are in some sort of sort of torrid, lustful kind of, I don't want to say relationship, but exchange with one another. And it kind of all but collapses by the end of it. And instead of having an interesting film of how women are kind of joining together to create images, to revolt, to create anarchy, and to, you know, um, flourish in a lesbian erotic tryst. Uh, it just kind of ends up being a very heteronormative <laughs> resolution. Okay, Dan, are you telling me? <laughs> Do you seriously think that, like, lesbians don't constantly think another woman's hot? And like they're really into them and they're like all these looking things going on there's like a little there's some flirtation you say yeah i do want to come over to your sexy old mansion and then you find out that that lesbian actually has really bad politics and you can't go any further and you're like fuck they were so hot why do they suck so much with the politics like i've been there have you never been there dan i mean i should have probably clued in a little faster in a few cases but i never did <laughs> Look, yeah, that's I what's happening in this film. That's what's happening in this film. But then and, it just ends in this like heteronormative was the witch there? Was it all a dream? And the potential of Annette, the BDSM doll. Let's talk about the underutilized potential of a BDSM 
doll that comes to life, not as a doll, but as a human that comes to life. Like the underrealized potential of that character to serve as kind of, I don't know, an interesting seductress. I mean, she kind of is, but she's ultimately like just a murderer and is easily kind of taken out of the film too. Sure. And she's also not good with consent. Like we do have a whole Absolutely scene not. that was, you know, it's it's problematic. Baba Yaga's not the not great with consent. Again, she has very bad politics. She's she's not a certainly not a lesbian hero, but I'm also going to remind you of lesbian pulp fiction novels. So lesbian pop fiction, pulp fiction novels were very, very popular in the 50s and 60s in America and elsewhere. These were books that you could buy for 10 cents or so in a drugstore. Um, There were hundreds and hundreds of them published, very, very um, economically uh, lucrative. Um, And the deal with these books was that they were allowed to be sold in these popular locations because yes, there were lesbians in them, but they had a bad ending. So the justification was that they were morality books, really, that yes, you can have lesbianism as long as the lesbians are punished at the end. And to me, this is that classic storyline. And a lot of lesbians and lesbian historians have talked about how these books were actually incredibly empowering to lesbians because they didn't see representation a lot. So they could read the books, skip the ending and have a nice lesbian story. And the authors, uh, many many of whom were straight men, but some were lesbians and they talk about writing the book that way. You get a good lesbian story, but the ending sucks, but you know just to skip that. And so here we have a film that has all this great lesbian sexual desire and sexual energy. And yeah, at the end, she ends up with Arno. They save each other. Baba Yaga dies or goes to hell or never existed or whatever. But we know not to watch the ending. We know that we can still get all of this great chemistry between the two of them if we watch the first hour or so. But so, all the punishment we have to endure, Tama, to even get to that bad ending. And it's not even fun punishment. It's not even, you know, Annette having a good time with Valentina. We have to be um, subject to Arno, Arno talking to her about her sapphic desire and how that's essentially like linked to witchcraft. Maybe we could play that quick mm. scene here. Yes, let's play that scene because... What I would say about why the lesbianism becomes kind of associated with negativity and violence is also about homophobia and drawing attention to it. So let's play that scene with Valentina and Arno when they're at the restaurant talking about Baba Yaga. All boils down to this mysterious lady who would like to introduce you to the delights of sapphic love. So what? You give her a lovely curtsy and you say, many thanks but I'd much rather make love with my friend Arno. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You don't understand anything. There's something different about Baba Yaga. It's as if she came from some other world, a world subject to other forces. Her eyes are so strange. The big world is full of people with strange eyes. No, not like this. There's something else. I don't know what it is. I can't even imagine it. And that's what scares me. For example, That hole in her living room doesn't just lead down to her basement. There's no end to it, don't you see? 
<laughs> Soon you'll be telling me that it's the pearly gates of hell, and your Baba Yaga is the custodian witch of it. How do you know she isn't? Because it's mad, that's all. Because we're living in the 20th century. We're, we're putting men on the moon, transplanting organs. Witches don't exist. Listen, you're being a bit too naive. Hell, Val, if it's anything, it's the world we're living in. <laughs> and if it did exist, I'll bet you, with all those souls, you can be certain that by now, why, it certainly would have been turned into some kind of supermarket. But something happened today, when the lights went out. I don't know what, but there's something. Some detail that I can't pin down that would help me understand. Even if the idea scares me to death. Understand what, Val? Now look, you meet an old lesbian, huh? And a friend of yours gets a headache, all of a sudden it's sorcery and witches. When we have this scene between Arno and um, Val, I think that Val's like really turned on by Baba Yaga, but she feels weird about it. She feels guilty about it. And Arno is immediately tamping that down by uh, making fun of Baba Yaga, by calling her old. Uh, she's not particularly old, um, but I guess she is a little bit older. He's making it seem like this would never be even in the realm of possibility for Val, who is, again, really portraying the kind of modern woman of the 60s and 70s, who is a sexual being and who very well might be interested in having a relationship with another woman. Yes, Tama, you you make a good point that this does kind of show that folks are interested. And in fact, it's 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 our man Arno who's stifling that potential, just like you may say, our director, also a man, is stifling the potential of the lesbianism in the film itself. So just don't watch the ending, Dan. Queers have known it for years. We love watching a good film that has a terrible ending. We just, we just, meh, bye, no ending. It's fine. They just get together. They have lots of kinky, hot, consensual sex. And that's the story in my head. Well, I would love for somebody to write a fan fandom or some fan fiction about this very obscure Italian witch film. I would love for that to happen and for these paratextual relationships to come out. But what we're left with is the conclusion of the film. And yes, we could ignore it, but it's still part of the film. It still dictates some of what is made possible in this particular world. And yet again, we have witchcraft being the kind of evil, tempting force of the film. It's actually aligned with like Nazism, uh, fascism, pr Prussia during World War One. Like there's a lot of sinister sinister there's a lot of evil and sinisterness if you could excuse my poor grammar that is associated with the witch failing to show again the liberation that is possible when we take up alternative ways of being which is precisely what the film is actually about is about social activism about changing the system and the film fails to change the system or or Dan, does it fail? Because maybe we actually have 
witchcraft, associated with lesbianism, associated with nature, and associated with the feminine that is written over by uh, the symbolic masculine. Um, Because what we see at the very, very end, if you want to talk about the very, very end, is that um, Val and Arno are caught in Baba Yaga's old mansion. Baba Yaga is no longer there. Um, As we've said, she's God knows where. And they get interrupted by a neighbor and by police officers who basically call into question their story, who call into question the reality of magic. And they say that no one's been living in the house because the house is actually about to be demoed um, to put up a grocery store on top. And so what maybe the film is actually telling us at the end is that society is the one that is not allowing for this kind of queer relationship, that society is the one that wants to get rid of history, that wants to get rid of the occult, that wants to get rid of femininity, because actually they want to put up a grocery store and continue with capitalism. I can't unhear Joni Mitchell's pave paradise, but to put up a grocery store. <laughs> That's I right. Is the I lesbian BDSM camera. house that is linked with, with murder history? No one gets murdered in that house. No one gets murdered. Valentina in that house. is whipped non-consensually by Annette in that house, first off, towards the end. Is that a haunted house issue or is that a doll issue? That's a doll issue, straight up a doll issue. Um, I mean, a, a witch issue. Yeah, sure, there are the evil parts there. But again, how do we justify this film getting made when it's actually a very political film? And we also hear from the director that a lot of this film was actually cut by the production company. Um, we should check if it was actually the production company. I think it was. That this film was really, really censored. And one of the scenes that was censored does not play well today. I will give it that. It looks very racist. But the idea behind the scene was to call into question colonization of Indigenous people and to bring attention to the ways that societies, that people, that cultures are taken over and destroyed. So does that not also give us a hint about what this film is about? And that is society silencing certain people. Stop the bloodshed, please. (laughs) Stop the bloodshed. One, two, three, and Dan's out. (laughs) All right, pal, that was... (laughs) I took a good looking in the end, I will say. Um, I am I am not maybe ready for this ring as much as I thought I was. I really thought I had the better position taking not feminist. And I got to say, you really gave me some good jabs. Well, I mean, this film is from 1973. There are some bad parts. There are. Yeah, there's like parts there's, that really don't hold up. Parts. Let's, sure. We'll be real. We'll be real about that. But, you know. 
I think it's how that era processed these social political movements, which we have evolved, taken note from, done, changed, transformed from. But I will say, Tama, you really put out a lot of the film's strengths that I think are really hard to counter. And I think that of the witch exploitation subgenre, of this collection of films, with all the caveats about what we've talked about today, this one does shine as a better example. I will agree. I think this film has some really wonderful aesthetics and political intentionality that is severely lacking from witch exploitation as kind of a corpus. All right, my witchy darlings, I'm gonna give this session, this match to Tama. Well done, friend. Well done. I hope you celebrate your victory because I am coming for you in our next episode. Thank you, as always, to our referee, Steffi McKnight, and to our person in charge of everything else, Anne Runtzman. We'd also like to give a very big shout out to the screening room in Kingston, as well as Novel Idea and Classic Video, who certainly are there for all your home movie and home reading needs. And remember to check out witchinstitute.com and sign up for free tickets to the over 40 events we have planned.